0: Welcome, this is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcasts as well as many other audio offerings. On September 17, 1787, the United States Constitutional Convention signed the U.S. Constitution into the highest law of the land. To celebrate Constitution Day and the publication of the fifth volume of the annual Cato Supreme Court Review, the Cato Institute would like to offer you a copy of the pocket Constitution completely free of charge. Just send an email with your name and address to constitution at for your free copy. For today's podcast, I am speaking with Roger Pilon, Vice President for Legal Affairs and Director of the Center for Constitutional Studies. This is the fifth annual Cato Supreme Court review. Why did you decide five years ago to begin publishing this review?
1: Well, the main reason is because there was no such review out there. Over the years, we've seen articles critiquing the court from a classical Madisonian perspective scattered throughout law reviews around the country. But what we wanted to do was to provide one place, one locus, whereby a person could turn to find a critique of the court's term just ended, plus a look at the cases coming up from this classical liberal Madisonian perspective Whereby the Constitution is viewed as protecting individual liberty through limited government. And so we set in motion this review five years ago, and we've now produced five annual reviews. And so there is a record there for students of the Constitution, students of the court, and indeed for judges and justices as well to find out what it is that the Constitution stands for, at least from our perspective of what Madison, Jefferson, and other founders would have thought were they to look at the court's decisions today.
0: And what are the highlights of this year's Supreme Court review?
1: Well, we have, first of all, the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. This year, uh, we published the lecture that was given at last year's Constitution Day Conference by Nadine Strawson, professor of law at New York Law School and president of the American Civil Liberties Union. On Religion and the Constitution, it is an essay that is sure to generate some controversy because she lays the issues out as she sees them. And, of course, there is always controversy surrounding the role of religion in the public square. So we're very pleased to put this view of the Constitution forward. There is a robust debate between Martin Flaherty of Fordham Law School and John Yu of the University of California at Berkeley Bolt Hall School of Law about the Hamden v. Rumsfeld decision, the scope of executive power with respect to the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And this, remember, was a decision that was coming from a bitterly divided 5-4 court. This is a very live issue, and you will see two sharply contrasting views of the matter in this issue of the review. There are discussions of the federalism cases, other First Amendment cases, some uh, commercial cases, and of course there is always the concluding essay that looks ahead at the issues that are coming up in the next term, which will begin in just two weeks from now.
0: Before we get into Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, let's talk about the Commerce Clause. It seems that even after the Supreme Court attempted to relimit its scope in the United States v. Lopez, Congress has continued to overreach its authority by invoking the Commerce Clause.
1: The Lopez decision, unfortunately, only chipped away at the commerce power of Congress. It found that the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990 had gone beyond the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. And in doing so, it gave great hope to those of us who want to see the Commerce Clause reined in that the court was at last going to begin doing so. Unfortunately, the law school professoriate began reading that decision very narrowly to the point that it stood only for its facts. Then in two thousand, five years later, when the Morrison decision came along, the court made it clear that it was serious, that it meant to restrain Congress's regulatory power under the Commerce Clause, but still, it was just chipping away at the edges. More recently, however, in the Raich decision that came down the term before this one, the court seemed to reverse itself And today one can say that there is virtually no limit on Congress's power to regulate anything and everything under its power to regulate interstate commerce because the basic doctrine is that Congress has the power to regulate anything that affects interstate commerce, which means virtually anything.
0: Having won cases on assisted suicide and the wetlands issue but lost in the Raich case, the medical marijuana case, where would you say the state of federalism is today?
1: It's back pretty much to the pre Lopez state of affairs. The Reich decision, the California medical marijuana decision, was an absolute disaster. After that, the court can regulate anything. I mean, this was a case that involved a claim by two women that they were using marijuana in one case that the woman herself grew. There was no commerce, much less interstate commerce. And so the question was, how was it that Congress could regulate under its power to regulate interstate commerce, so intrastate a matter having nothing whatever to do with commerce? Well, it was the most strained of readings that enabled the court to reach that activity. In effect, the Commerce Clause was read as giving Congress a general police power Which, of course, the court had always held belongs only to the states. So, after Reich, we had the decisions this term in the wetlands cases and in the assisted suicide case before that, both of which we quote won, but both of which were decided on statutory grounds, not constitutional grounds. And so, we won them on their facts with respect to what Congress had done through legislation. But as the court made clear in both cases, the Congress can go back and rewrite those statutes to enable the activities that were rendered immune from congressional regulation to become no longer immune from such regulation.
0: On the other hand, the ruling in Hamdan v. Rumsfeld was a sign that the Constitution is alive and well, don't you think?
1: Not necessarily. It all depends how you read the opinion in light of the Constitution's provision for executive power. And that's what the debate in this year's review between Martin Flaherty and John Yu is all about. This was, of course, a bitterly divided 5-4 court. And the court essentially stepped into an area where for some 200 years almost, the court had not stepped. And so we are faced with a New Day, so to speak. In fact, I will read to you from my foreword in this year's review an article that came out in the New York Review of Books after the Hamda decision came down by David Cole of Georgetown University, one of the major critics of the administration. He writes in the New York Review of Books, The Supreme Court has said in the past that foreign nationals who are outside U.S. borders like Hamdan lack any constitutional protections. Hamdan was a member of the enemy forces when he was captured, and courts are especially reluctant to interfere with the military's treatment of enemy aliens in wartime. He filed his suit before trial and courts generally prefer to wait until a trial is completed before assessing its legality. And as recently as World War II, the Supreme Court upheld the use of military tribunals and ruled that the Geneva Conventions are not enforceable by individuals in U.S. courts but may be enforced only through diplomatic means. Finally, the Detainee Treatment Act of 2005 required defendants in military tribunals to undergo their trials before seeking judicial review and prescribed the D.C. Circuit as the exclusive forum for such review. Having said all of that about how the court has acted for nearly 200 years, he then went on to characterize the decision as equal parts stunning and crucial. Indeed, stunning and crucial is right, because the court did something here that it had never done before, and it raises the question— where is the precedent in this? What does the Constitution say about this? Is this an entirely novel reading of the Constitution? Will it stand in light of future courts and in light of the fact that it was a 5-4 decision? This is uncharted territory that we're in right now. And I would point out this. There are parts of the Constitution that leave certain issues to political determination rather than to determination by complex and extensive lawmaking, two such areas have traditionally been the conduct of foreign affairs as between the two political branches, Congress and the president, and campaign finance, which seems to be utterly unconnected, but in fact is connected by this same fundamental point. The Constitution leaves these two areas essentially to political determination rather than to determination by specific laws and by the courts. But in recent years, we have seen Congress intruding in both these areas with micromanaging both campaign finance and foreign affairs. So by no means is it clear where we are going in these two areas. These are very much up for robust debate. Over the coming years, and that's what this debate in this year's review is all about.
0: If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60 minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional, one of a kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.